Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This is episode 213, part two of our question and answer session from the two-day health and performance seminar in Atlanta, Georgia at Alpha Strength and Power Gym. In this segment, we answer questions about back surgery, special training for knee pain, current struggles in our own training, and much, much more. Check out the timestamps in the description below to jump to your favorite section. Also, we were recently on the Nadolski Brothers podcast. They call it the Docs Who Lift, and I think we might take a little issue with that, or maybe it's just all of the Docs Who Lift. No, uh, some good friends of ours. Uh, we were on their podcast discussing social media influencer recommended medical testing and treatments. I don't know if you guys have seen this stuff on social media. You know, these are the fitfluencers telling you to get your hormones checked or take this particular medication or supplement or whatever um, to fix some sort of health condition that you purportedly have. I put the link in the description below, but I'm wondering, have you ever seen this stuff? And if you have, and especially if you've gotten any of these treatments or tests done, drop us a line at media at barbellmedicine.com. Some of the stuff going on here is certainly illegal and uh, definitely worthy of some further investigation. I'm just more curious to what our audience has experienced. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessory needs. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide lever belt for powerlifting, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make a belt to your specifications. All products are made in the United States. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by our other sponsor, Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates guaranteed to be within 10 grams of their stated weight, machined iron plates that are manufactured to within 1% tolerances, air bikes, belt squat machines, racks, bars, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment from Bells of Steel, they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order, and they'll even pay the shipping back. Check them out over at bellsofsteel.us and use the code BBM23 to get 10% off selected items. All right, without further delay, let's pop into this week's podcast again. This is episode 213, part two of our question and answer session from the two-day health and performance seminar in Atlanta, Georgia. All right, what do we need to be teaching the kids of today about health and exercise? Oh, boy. Why do people come to us for advice? Kids? Um, this is interesting. I, I mean, I think there's good evidence out there on um, people's attitudes related to food, their knowledge about preparing food, their dietary pattern, uh, and BMI trajectory, for example, on how their parents ate uh, uh, while they were in um, during childhood. Some of that's obviously related to socioeconomic status and the food environment. People said live in similar uh, uh, food environments as uh, where they grew up. And the food environment today is currently pretty much encompassing the entire environment. So uh, there, there's a little bit of that. Uh, but you would want to have your kids know how to cook, what foods to buy, um, and have some semblance of how to create a health-promoting meal. And I don't know that that level of knowledge is actually lacking in the community. And what I, what I mean by that is if you ask people like what's healthier, like this ultra processed packaged food or fresh vegetables, like in general, people are gonna be like fresh vegetables. I think where the disconnect is like not only how to prepare that, but also how to procure it, like how to get it, uh, particularly if they can't afford it, don't can't store it, don't you know have the time to do all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of another stickier issue, but you'd want kids to know how to obtain prepare, 
store uh, and can uh, make a health promoting meal. And then as far as exercise goes, we need to, well, I don't know if we need to teach kids uh, that they need to exercise, but having programs that sort of uh, in, uh, should be more like play increase at that age, increase participation part, in yeah so we don't i mean we have you guys i brought up that term uh food swamps yeah so there's like physical activity swamps and physical activity deserts as well there's not places where they can play or be active and so in addition to having like public programs that increase uh the opportunity for participation in exercise uh also uh there are even i would consider maybe like more affluent opportunities. So Pop Warner football, for example, is huge. Hundreds of thousands of kids nationwide participating in Pop Warner football. Why are they not lifting weights? They have the resources, right? There's a ton of resources there and you could start, the physical activity guidelines suggest that, you know, youth should be lifting weights two to three times per week at a minimum. So why aren't we doing that? Why is that not associated with gymnastics, for example, or other youth sports that have pretty big participation? So you'd want to maybe start there and see what lessons you can learn because, you know, if there's a bunch of money available, you can probably get this done quicker and then expand that uh, uh, further into the community. You don't want to comment on this? You're just, you're just passing? So the answer to that is correct. Yes. Right. However, what I would say is that, I mean, I think that um, I understand that our position in, you know, physicians and we have this relatively broad base of kind of knowledge and to, in, in some sub areas expertise, but there's a lot of stuff I just don't know. And so I am unwilling to comment on a lot of things. People might ask me my opinions on like, what would you do with the whole healthcare system? And I'm like, I don't know. I know how to like treat heart failure and lots of other bad things in the hospital. I know how to like have a good conversation with a patient, rehab some back pain, yeah. rule out bad things, come to some you know nerdy esoteric internal medicine diagnoses uh, among many other things. I know how to train, get people strong, but like some of these things, I don't know. Well, so I wish I had strong, confident, evidence-based opinions on everything, but I don't have much for you. I don't know how to handle no. children. How <laughs> yeah. do we turn them into? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I get Sorry. that. Well, yeah, I, and I think trying to come up with a policy is obviously beyond our, our scope, but we know some shared goals that would be beneficial. What I think, but do I know that that would like fix the problem? That's oh, like a hypothesis sure, yeah. that we think that those things would All help. Right. I don't know disclaimer, that to be true. Disclaimer you know? to what I just said. Yeah. I don't know that. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All right, fair Remains enough. Remains to be shown. <laughs> yeah. You want to do the COVID vaccine next? Definitely not. Okay. We'll, I think we're on like a couple, couple questions left. Yeah, right. When should patients start to consider options like a discectomy or laminectomy when patients have persistent radicular symptoms? Oh boy. Complicated question. And similar to the last, so this is relating to the syndrome of sciatica, radicular pain going down the leg. I'm not a surgeon. I don't directly have these conversations with patients. However, I am reasonably aware of a fair amount of the evidence around this. And I think I'll remind everybody from the pain lecture how I described that disc herniations, particularly the more severe they are, the more likely they are to heal on their own with time. So that's something that is important to know upfront because it is relevant to decision-making around, I have this condition, I have this syndrome, should I get surgery or not? If it is couched in, this will never get better without surgery. Not only is that wrong, but it will also lead people down a particular path, right? So I think that's one thing that could be relevant to decision-making. Um, conveniently, there was a paper that was published this past month by Willems uh, in, in January of 2023 
titled Variability in Recovery Following Microdiscectomy and Postoperative PT for Lumbar Radiculopathy that basically looked at all these people who had MRI-confirmed lumbar radiculopathy, underwent discectomy and post-op PT, and looked, followed their outcomes over time, and then stratified them into like people who had a great outcome, people who had a medium outcome, not a great outcome. About a third had a poor outcome, about two-thirds had a good outcome. If I compare that to a lot of things in medicine, that's actually not bad, yep. right? If I can get a two-thirds good outcome with an intervention, generally I'll take it. Admittedly, about a third did not have a particularly good outcome, which is also relevant to decision-making around this, right? Um, and then when we look at other data around time to surgery, this has been looked at a bunch of different uh, in a bunch of different papers around um, upfront, more you know, rapid jump to th something like a discectomy versus more delayed. It seems like things can be pretty good and relatively similar up to about six months or so in like the 24 week range. Beyond that, um, outcomes tend to get a little bit worse, but really not all that, that much worse either. But I think that that's like a reasonable kind of time point to kind of look around as far as, um, you know, people who get surgery done earlier, if they're going to, seem to have more rapid recovery compared to much later than that. And so this is all a bunch of stuff that I'm, you know, I have consulted with people around this who are questioning whether they should get surgery. And so it's like, well, a year or two years or three years from now, I think you're probably going to end up in a similar place, whether or not you get it done. Um, we can go through some, some rehab. And if, you were will, if this is a tolerable situation for you and you would prefer to not get surgery, I remain reasonably optimistic for you. I can't guarantee a good outcome to anybody, but I think you'd likely be okay. But you have to put up with this for a while, potentially, and radicular pain is miserable. So do, would I blame you if you said, I don't want to put up with this, I'd rather get the surgery done now, get a more rapid improvement in my symptoms, knowing that my outcome may be similar long-term, in which case I would maybe lean a little bit earlier than kicking it out to nine months, 12 months longer than that if that makes sense. So that's like the kind of very general framework to that kind of a conversation. And it ends up being pretty individual because a lot of people come in already with some idea in mind of how willing they might be to undergo a surgery if it's kind of on the table. And of course, there are also in-between interventions between do nothing and do surgery. And those can also be discussed and entertained. And we have colleagues to whom we can refer, like our helpful physiatrists, et cetera, who can, who can, who can be great as well. So um, those are kind of like the, the big picture uh, or bullet points that I would have in a conversation like that. I have no opinion. Great. Yeah, hey. We can move on. All right. Uh, have there been any useful diet slash exercise conclusions out of the biggest loser? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I got you back here. Okay. God. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Uh, oh, okay. Well, actually, I think the most interesting thing that I uh, have come out of, there have been multiple studies published on the people who've gone through The Biggest Loser. And the most interesting thing that I found out of this is that those who lost the most amount of weight and sustained it the longest to the greatest degree, greatest amount, had the biggest decrease in metabolic rate. And so that kind of, it, it confirms a lot of stuff that has been said over time. Yes, as you lose weight, your basal metabolic rate goes down. As you lose body weight, your basal metabolic rate goes down. Uh, we know that to be true. But people will consistently say, like, the reason why I am unable to maintain my weight loss, for example, or I'm having difficulties maintaining my weight loss or even losing weight is because my metabolism's actually going down. And it's like, well, if you actually were losing weight, your metabolism would be going down. And so since you're not, it's not and probably not related. You never say that to the person. That's not the point here. Um, but I guess just this interesting confirmation that, yep, if you lose a bunch of weight and you sustain it, your basal metabolic rate is going to be lower. 
And so that's not probably contributing to the problem as far as like weight loss sustainability. It's just more of like a artifact of you losing the weight and keeping it off. And so if people are having issues losing weight, rather than sort of tell them to try to raise your metabolism, for example. Just close your eyes and yeah, focus. <laughs> manifest a higher metabolism. <laughs> Think good metabolism vibes. Rather, we're trying to figure out what is going on with respect to their uh, dietary uh, habits and how can we best intervene there, whether it's through more lifestyle stuff or uh, medications and or surgery. surgery. But that was a really interesting thing that came out. Um, it, it was almost said as an afterthought towards the end of the results and then the discussions like, oh yeah, and by the way, the people who lost the most amount of weight and kept it off most successfully also had the lowest, uh, they had the biggest decrease in their metabolic rate. And you're like, wait, what? Can you go back? Can we talk about that more? Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, anything else that you, for the biggest loser? I knew you knew this data better than I did, so. Oh, got your back. Yeah. <laughs> Last two. All right, what personal training struggles have you had uh, at or near your current level of training and how have you managed it? Oh, oh, not like training other people, but like our personal. Our own training, Ooh. our own biggest struggles. Uh, I have a problem with falling off of motorcycles. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not a problem if I didn't have like meets scheduled in close proximity to uh, colliding with the earth at high velocities. Um, you generally prefer to bench with your humerus in its socket. That's true, yes. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, dislocating both upper extremities uh, within the last calendar year has not been great for my bench. Um, but you know, it was interesting, the, the first time it happened, I was 10, no, nine weeks out from my meet. And so the, it was an interesting opportunity to see like, all right, what's this rehab process gonna be like? And then how quickly am I gonna be able to return to my prior performance level? And so the first day after I did it, I couldn't put on a shirt. Uh, so I had to wear a button down shirt and I was doing it with the one side, pulling it over or whatever. I remember I had a date uh, that night or whatever. And at the end she gave me a hug and I was like, ow. And she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, it's just, it's just, my, it's just my shoulder. I'm very sensitive. Uh, so, and then I think I could bench the bar at like four days post, post dislocation. And then it was like 60 kilos at the end of a week. But anyway, fast forward to the end of the meat prep and at the meat I benched 190 kilos. So 418 pounds, which uh, yeah, it's five kilos off my all time meat PR. It moved pretty quickly. I also did a self lift off because I was just like, this shoulder's mine, I got this. Uh, I want to hold it. I want to hold it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so that was like an interesting challenge to overcome because I'd never had an acute like musculoskeletal injury that happened outside of the gym and that close proximity to a meet. And so there's a cool opportunity for me to like go through, you know, feel all the feels, experience all the things and just, uh, that was a cool opportunity. It was less cool when it happened the second time on the other side because I was <laughs> one week out from a meet and I was like, damn, I don't have enough time to fix this. Symmetry though. So yeah, well at least they've both been dislocated <laughs> in, the last, in the last calendar year. Yeah. So uh, what about you? Probably just interest. Yeah, okay. I would say. I, don't, I have never um, like lost motivation to train. Uh, that's always been something that I've enjoyed a lot. I think just being a lifelong athlete since I was a kid and swimming and lifting and things like that. However, um, we're definitely at points where like one RMs, which is the metric by which this sport is measured, uh, happen very infrequently. <laughs> like if we're lucky once a year, maybe, probably less often than that. And so um, 
pursuing that as the singular goal can become tedious. And so I think finding other ways to keep things interesting uh, has been the challenge. And as we've talked about a little bit before, the method or the strategy is just like moving goalposts around a little bit to keep it interesting in some fashion. And so that might involve different variations that we've not done before that you can set new PRs on and continue to live with yourself. What, what do you think? <laughs> or different rep ranges that you've not hit before. What, what's the weirdest PR you think you've hit in the last year? Um, I mean, I was even at a point where I was uh, doing different variations all in the same day and I made like a pseudo total for that training session each week. Okay. And I was like, it was like a day where I did like high bar, squat, reverse grip bench, and like a paused sumo deadlift. And it was like the total of the singles at seven on those three different things. And I was like, sweet, I hit a 1600 total on this <laughs> weird as hell combination of limits. So that was like one way or aiming for new sets of 10, which again, you guys know how often those are typically done. I'm, you know, thinking about, um, you know, our, our um, Mikey who does the weird skateboard tricks. Oh yeah. He's working towards deadlifting 500 for 20. So I've got me wondering. Maybe I'll go for 500 for 20. I'm not Wait, that far away do you from think, that. I think you could do 500 for 20 now. I think so. I've just not done it. Really so sure. that'll buy me a couple weeks, you know? Oh, I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll fix something. <laughs> but, so that's kind of the method, is just moving goalposts around to different movements, different rep ranges, things like that. So if it's like I'm always super fixated on a one rep max, it's like, man, I got a long year and a half ahead of me or something before, before the stars align and all training aligns and life aligns and I'm not like on call that night before or something like that to actually make that kind of thing happen. So P People just want to see you do super superhuman stuff superhero stuff just lift heavy weights and no one's no one cares about your your weird goals sorry i'm just letting you know that <laughs> yeah just do it on a skateboard yeah you'll be fine. all right last one my knees are cranky even though i do loaded squats in a variety of ways with no trouble and i have no injuries i get sharp pains from the knees when getting up and down from a chair on the floor is the knees over toes guy let me edit that out later if you want to. If the knees over toes guy uh, onto something with his special exercises, uh, any other recommendations for happy knees? I'm surprised you picked this. Yeah, I think it's worth commenting on. And I'm happy to talk about the guy. All right, do your thing. That's fine. Yeah, go off, King. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think he blew up on the scene and he got kind of amplified by some other people who have like big followings and podcasts and stuff. And so this has been something I've gotten plenty of questions about. Um, I think that he's done some good by D stigmatizing or removing some of the fear from using your joint, using your knees, because that has been demonized in other areas, right? Mm -hmm. Where you don't want to get into your knees too much on a squat or let them go forward or um, forward, you know, knee movement in a squat or, you know, any other kind of activity like that. So he's kind of helped to swing things in the other direction to make it, it, it's kind of to some extent in line with like our friend Greg Lehman's like movement optimism idea, right? Like you can move around in all sorts of ways and it's good and safe and desirable to be able to do these things. Um, I have not personally listened to the way he speaks about these movements. However, hearing from the kind of questions we get, it does make it sound like they are a little bit oversold as being magic movements, very special movements, things like that. And I don't think there's any one movement or any kind of special movement. I just think that we're getting people to move through tolerable ranges of motion, working to improve that, make people less afraid, push into those kind of things. And I'm down with that general idea. Um, I would not oversell any one particular thing. And so somebody in this situation, it sounds like they have some knee pain with basic 
activities of daily living, but they can squat without pain or discomfort or injury. So it's like, it sounds like that's not maybe helping as much as you would like in your daily activities. So we need probably some more variety in your training. And like I talked about in the pain lecture, as far as something that we often do with people, prescribing them silly looking exercises, getting them moving in all sorts of different ways, doing some unilateral stuff. I might have this person do some more lunges. They probably don't do lunges or some split squats or some Cossack squats, some lateral lunges, some reverse lunges. I might put them on a leg extension machine. Whoa. I would get them moving Whoa. their knees and their lower extremities in every plane, in every direction, in whatever tolerable range they could. I wouldn't do that all in one day. I wouldn't do that to RPE 10. I wouldn't do that with super high volume. I would sprinkle it in here and there and see how it's, how it's tolerated and set expectations that this is gonna be a process. It's gonna take time. There's gonna be ups and downs, just like any kind of rehab thing. But I wanna get them comfortable moving in all sorts of ways. I would definitely prefer somebody, I don't really care how much you can squat if you have a ton of knee pain, just like standing up off the floor, right? that's not really a way to live. And that's something, that's a thought that has even gone through my own head in my own training. If I have some back pain creeping up or something, I'm like, I could ignore this and keep training, but like, why? <laughs> I would prefer to not live like this if I don't have to. And so I just have to suck it up and take the weight off the bar, make that go away, right? And then train in a way that I enjoy or can tolerate in the meantime so that I can live my life and not have pain standing up from my chair in my office or on rounds or something like that, right? Yep. Um, and so that's what I would do for this person, mainly say, well, maybe squatting is not necessarily solving this. I'd be curious what your squat program looks like. Maybe it's actually contributing to some of it in some way. Maybe I need to adjust the dose there and introduce more variety and get you moving in other weirder ways than you ever have before. Yep. Yeah, I think my biggest issue with the particular person being addressed here is this idea of like bulletproofing your knees by doing these specific exercises. It's like, yeah, so no, that's not really a thing. Like, and, and selling it as such, again, it, it's just trading one problem for another. Like we don't want to reduce people's pain experiences down to like some sort of damage to the joint or like movement issue uh, necessarily. Uh, and so he's like, yeah, but we're going to bulletproof it and we're going to, you're going to have all this resistant to all this damage that you could potentially incur. And it's like, it's the same problem. Just, you just kick the can down the road. So I don't, I don't really like that or like glorifying the Nordic hamstring curl or like any particular type of leg exercise. It's like, there's a bunch of different stuff we can choose from whatever your preferences are and whatever you seem to respond best to let's use those things. But, um, you know, I do agree that getting people like swinging the pendulum from like, don't ever let your knees go forward to like, yeah, that's okay. And that's gonna have to happen for various uh, physical activities and athletic pursuits, sure. But again, let's not reduce people's knee pain down to like, you know, they didn't bulletproof their knees enough or they didn't do enough Nordic hamstring curls. It's more complicated than that. And I've never heard a dude once uh, describe any elements of like load management, for example, or like these very fundamental principles in like, programming, um, particularly from a rehab perspective. And so that's kind of my, those are my, my problems. Those are the recommendations for happy knees, since that was the question. Yeah, load management, <laughs> wide variety of different exercises, make sure not to hyper-specialize in either exercises, rep schemes, make sure you're not too close as far as proximity to failure goes, do your unilateral, unilateral work, and uh, if things are not giving you the results that you want, change them iteratively over time. And if you don't know how to do that, we can help. We can help. Yeah. Cool. That's it. That's it. Thank you guys so much for coming to our seminar. Cool. 
That's a wrap on episode 213. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure to check out all the links in the description below. And before you guys go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.